He's just an innocent guy looking for a little fun. Hi, this is Paul Hackett. We met earlier tonight. Hi, maybe you should come over, Paul. But before the night's over, he's going to be picked up, pushed around, put on, wrung out, flung out, strung out, pawed, pumped, plastered, and paper mache. What have I done? Just a word process. It could only happen after hours. Rated R. Now at select theaters coming soon to additional locations. don't know is you've always been talking to yourself and you release these episodes and it's just you and i don't actually exist <laughs> no i am the i am that's funny i, I am the gaius baltar i guess yeah. and you would be my number six I'm number six exactly weird i just got really weird with it <laughs> yeah don't do that <laughs> Oh my God! Well, I I hope that you're here with me. <laughs> um, I'm here. Welcome back! Welcome back to another episode of Reconcinimation. I am John Diner, and I'm Dave Munchak. And this is the podcast where we take a look back at some of our favorite films from the '70s, '80s, and '90s, and we're examining how they how they hold up today. If they hold up, uh, do they work? Do they not work? And uh, how does it feel from a 20, 2020 perspective? And uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we got a good one today. We've been coming off of a uh, a good bunch of episodes lately. You know, we've had we've had kind of a fun summer, kind of all across the board, right, David? Yeah, we're doing our best to enjoy the the hot hot weather uh, with the, some movies we like, love, or maybe hate, but mostly like and some love. Summer of Love, <laughs> twenty twenty. <laughs> It's a nightmare yeah. out there. Oh, that's 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, 2020 is 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 a, is a real loving kind of year. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's what we try to do. You know, there's so much heaviness and craziness out there. We try to leave the politics at the door and use this uh, show as a way to take your mind off of all that stuff and. You know, let's talk, just talk movies, and let's talk about the the movies we used to love or we love now, and and uh, you know, sometimes some politics will come in a little bit, but we mostly try to leave it at the door. Um, sure, you know, we do all have our personal stances, and that's all all fine. So yeah, art reflects life and things of that nature, and certainly that's part of the conversation. But when you're at home, um, where you you have to face reality all, day in and day out. A lot of times you pop on a movie that you love or you haven't seen in a while. And it's it's not about uh, shifting away from reality entirely, but it's about looking at a different world. So that's part of what we're doing. It's kind of like we're hoping that maybe you just watched the, the movie we're discussing. and you Or it's a favorite of yours and you want to hear two other uh, goofballs talk about something that you enjoy. So it's more about continuing mm. the, the w- what art can serve. Uh, for someone who who might be who who needs it, so um, that's why we're here, right, Johnny? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we. That's why we're here. That's that's the what we do here. This is my the, friends. This is the absolute least we can do. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't. As long as we're not um, detracting, or you know, as long as we're not running a deficit, <laughs> as long as we're maybe adding right, to something, no. I think I feel like it, we belong. <laughs> So let's keep going on that. We have fans. 
Dude, we have fans all over the world. All over. All over. Yes. Yeah. We hear from them every day. Look at day. the numbers. Check the check the go back to the Reconsina computer mm-hmm. and check the numbers. We got we're in Japan, we're in New Zealand, we're in of course our friends in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're all over the place, all over Europe. We're we're hot. Yeah, yeah. We're reaching we're reaching audiences far and wide. So come along with us, won't you? Um, before we get into today's great great film. Uh, what do you? I just want. What are you doing now? What are you watching right now? Are you watching a show? Are you watching? Uh, what What are you uh, up to, David? Oh, uh, you know that uh, that show, uh, Dead to Me on Netflix. That's that's my okay. That's yeah. That's that's been back. So I I enjoyed that first season. I'm a big Christina Applegate fan. Samantha Who for life. I mm-hmm. uh, love that stuff. Uh, so that's that's kind of like the latest show I've sort of been paying attention to. Uh, uh, that um, and uh, I'm reading the 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 Eisner award-winning comic uh, Bone, which is uh, uh, oh nice uh, a great a great series. So I've never read it before, but have the compilation Bone is uh, really great. So that's kind of like what I'm paying attention to um, in, in terms of entertainment um, since there's no sports at this time of of recording. Um, <laughs> no no sportsing, and you know I love sports. <laughs> I've got you know you've seen my where I live. I've got sports posters and memorabilia everywhere. I, I trip all it's over. It's just jerseys, wall to wall jerseys. Jerseys. Favorite posters. Dwight Gooden. <laughs> Daryl Strawberry. A shocking a shocking amount of Bo Jackson uh memorabilia. Shocking. <laughs> Not to me. It's just the right amount. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What's been uh catching your eye for the, the entertainments? I'm doing okay, so I'm doing a Bond fest. Mm. Uh, we've been going through and rewatching uh, all the Bond films in order, mm-hmm. so that's been a, a fun journey. And you know, looking back, maybe one day we'll we'll get into some of the Bond films here because my God, uh, there's some interesting ones mm-hmm. and some great ones and some really awful ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that franchise has changed greatly over the years. Sure. But, um, I am also rewatching Battlestar Galactica, which is funny Whoa. that we were, were, you know, we're talking about that earlier. But uh, yeah, the the remake of Battlestar Galactica, mind you, not the seventies version, okay. not the original, and not the Battlestar Galactica nineteen eighty short lived sequel <laughs> no. series. <laughs> Did you ever see that? I haven't. I have not. It's. I mean, if you like the original season, then you kind of should watch it but it's really it's not it's not good if uh i I think if you want the the whole bsg thing you watch the edward james almost version and and which yeah is fantastic i'm halfway through it you know and i'm barely i barely remembered the storylines at all Mm. um i remembered just briefly some of them Mm -hmm. um because it's been I don't know, 12 years since I've seen it. And it's, uh, you know, some things, you know, some of it's not the greatest acting in the world, but it's, it's a really well-written show. And, Mm -hmm. and the, uh, some of the actors are just fantastic. So I highly recommend that if you haven't checked out BSG. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm probably not going to go back to the original series or that sequel series. So, uh, BSG current day for life. (laughs) <laughs> for me so yeah good stuff that's oh that's fun yeah bond and bsg that's those, those are nice departures from reality <laughs> in between you know in between all the research that we do for uh 
for whatever we're covering on this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of lots of intense research. I'm at the library <clears throat> every day. <laughs> You're outside at the library, not allowed in. Yeah, I use their Wi-Fi. <laughs> doing your research. Yeah, that's fine. You're, you're just the guy in the, in the bushes behind the library. Yeah, I use their Wi-Fi and just Google stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even use their resources. Um, well, we should. Uh, we should. It's funny. We're, we're actually um, going to dial the way back machine to a year we recently covered. The year, the the amazing year of 1985. 1985. We're back. We're back. Oh my gosh, we were just here last week, weren't we? Or last episode. Yeah. yeah, and we're, yeah, we're not talking about Michael J. Fox again this week. Ugh, I mean, we. Do you think maybe we can I mean, ha- we, we could. can spend like ten minutes on him if we? <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's fine. We can move on to we something should. else. I'm I'm fine with that. <laughs> um. Well, yeah. I I wanted to take a look back at a movie that I've. I, I'm sort of new-ish to, uh, but has been on my list forever uh, that I, I love a lot. Uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Oh, After Hours. Yeah, okay. I can talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I think this is one of those movies that I, like, lectured you about for a very long time. Uh, and you recently watched it, right? Yeah, I don't think you lectured me on this that much. There's other movies. I I thought I did. I usually like. I'm used to lecturing everybody about After Hours. I'm sure you talk about <laughs> it a lot. I mean, no, there was a lot more, like Thief. I think that I heard. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of shit for not having seen, <laughs> and and I had also seen that. Um, and then if I might, I might have just tuned you out about After Hours. Uh, for a while, probably. So yeah, I mean, well, when I lecture at you for like thirty straight minutes, eventually you're gonna just tune me like, out. Why have you not seen this? This is a great. This is Martin Scorsese. This is this, this <laughs> revitalizes his career. This is amazing. Griffin Dunn's fantastic. Why, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, uh huh. Uh, and my eyes glaze over. You're like, I can't believe your it. eyes glaze over. You're just like, Bo Jackson. Bo knows <laughs> Scorsese. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just thinking about Bo Jackson again. <laughs> um, when was the uh, when was the first time you remember hearing about this movie? Honestly, I don't know if I had an awareness of it be- until you brought it up. I, I really don't think I did. I uh, so when you started telling me about it, I'm like, oh, it's Scorsese movie. Okay, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, y- you and I watched it together um, with some folks uh, or one or two i don't remember at the we watched it together at the recommended time john diner's recommended uh and i'm pretty adamant about it what what hour you should watch this movie after midnight after midnight i think right gotta be it's gotta be because it's got it's a late night it's yeah it takes place go ahead it it takes place after hours so this is the only the whole movie's essentially at night you know other than the opening and closing scenes but this is this is the time to enjoy it. It's like why would you, why would you watch say like a horror movie at two in the afternoon? You don't do that. It's you don't do you that. Don't do no. That. no, there's certain there's certain movies that are really you know they're good anytime, but they really are at their perfection when viewed at certain times. Mm-hmm. Like The Goonies is a rainy day movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, period. You watch that on a, that is that's a movie you watch when it rains. Yeah. And you're stuck inside. 
this movie is, uh, you know, you watch it after midnight. Sure. It can be one, two, three. You got to be done by six a.m. Yeah. But that's uh, that's my strong recommendation. Yeah, bachelor party any time on the weekend after maybe seven p.m. <laughs> bachelor party with Tom Hanks. <laughs> you don't you don't fire that up on a, a Wednesday morning. <laughs> that's a, that's no, a, no way. Wholly inappropriate. Who are you kidding? It's just you're just not going to get the the feel of it. Yeah, <laughs> but this is uh, After Hours is sort of a forgotten movie. I think for the most part, it was. Uh, you know, I remember as a kid in the video store. This is another one of those posters that I remember seeing hanging up uh, in at movies one mm-hmm. and being like, you know, it's like his head being twisted like a corkscrew and the clock, and it's a great image. It's a beautiful poster. Yeah. Uh, and I was just so fascinated with it um, that, uh, but I never saw it. I never really knew much about the movie, and, you know, it was, it was a low-budget movie. It wasn't a huge release, uh, and then it kind of, you know, once Scorsese's career kind of progressed the way it did in the late 80s and early 90s, this movie was kind of pushed aside for sure, as were a couple of others. But mm-hmm. um, it wasn't until I think a DVD box set of Scorsese's came out in like maybe 2004, somewhere around there. And it was like After Hours, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Who's That Knocking on My Door, and uh, a couple of other, Mean Streets and and one other one. Um, and I just grabbed it and mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, after I, I've been wanting to see this movie forever. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I, it, I remember it vividly. It was a Sunday night and neither of us could sleep that night. And we were just taught, both of us were just tossing and turning and, and just one of those like hot, uncomfortable nights. Mm-hmm. And it was like, one o'clock, I think, and I was like ready to throw in the towel. I'm like, there's, I, I there's, I'm just gonna toss and turn all night. So, and she said the same thing. I said, well, why don't we just? You want to watch a movie? Like, we'll watch it in bed. And and uh, I grabbed After Hours, and it was turns out to be like the perfect time to watch that movie. Mm-hmm. And we were both like so absorbed into it because it it's it's like this. I don't know. It's like this sort of whirlwind that you're sucked into along along for the ride with Paul Hackett. You know, do you feel that way? Yeah, yeah. I think you're like you, you're you're swept up in it, and it's it's got this like s- kind of like stress inducing tension um, that kind of that just slowly builds um, without getting too like like the level of ridiculousness uh, continues to increase, but it 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 all seems manageable, but also so inexplicable, and you're just sort of like it's daunting you you get kind of like disoriented throughout um so it's very mm-hmm. like engaging in that way like because it's it's almost dreamlike in a, in a lot of in a lot of different ways yeah um, yeah and so yeah i mean i you know when you said that you had seen that poster i i bet you i'm sure either the poster or the box you know the box art of it when i was a kid and renting you know going through the rentals and stuff like that i've probably seen that image it it kind of looks familiar but like for a lot of things as in my child childhood like sense of things like it was so weird and like doesn't it doesn't make sense i couldn't really kind of put together what like the meaning of that image is with his head being like twisted and mm-hmm. stuff but the, um like but now like looking at that like that 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 really does encapsulate sort of a, a lot of the themes of the movie um really communicates like this is a this is something that just um, 
uh, like attacks you in a, in a weird way and messes with you. Uh, and that's what's happening to Paul Hackett. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm with you on that. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's one of those examples of, you know, especially, especially 80s posters and some 70s yeah. that really, you know, the great posters, of course, all the Drew Struzan posters and, and works like that, that really encapsulated the movie and, and captured the tone of the movie mm-hmm. in one single image. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of those for sure. Like you feel that squeeze, you feel that pressure that he's under just looking at the image. Um, it's real artistry. Whereas in the 90s, like you started to get towards that. Like, just put the face of the star. You know, Tom Cruise's face has to be on this poster. It really doesn't tell you anything about the movie. It just tells you who's in it. Right, yeah. And that's, and that's like, <clears throat> I think, you know, we talk a lot about 1996. I, th- I feel like after that year, they started going more and more in that direction of just the star-driven, you know, promoting it just about the stars and not about, you know, what is this movie about? Yeah. And, you know, the whole... You know, and you see artists like Drew Struzan himself, like, stop making posters and kind of retire from it. And the whole concept changed. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So I need to I need to grab this poster and, and you know, frame it, put it up in my office here at Recon Cinema Studios. Mm-hmm. I think you should. I think it would be great. You should get like a I wonder if the, the if there are uh, international editions of the poster that like are different and weird. You ever see like those? Yeah, those those like I th- and, is it Polish? One of the Polish po- movie posters are so like crazy, or some some country does. Oh my god, like, they're all so weird. They go really weird and off base, like from yeah. the content of the movie. And sometimes you're <clears throat> just sort of shocked, like this is how they grab the, the 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 people's attention to go see these films, even if it doesn't have anything to do with the actual content of the film. <laughs> Yeah, some of some of them have absolutely nothing to do with whatever the movie is. Like Ghostbusters, I remember is a really bizarre one. Alien has a bizarre one. Yeah. I mean, it's just has yeah, it's just <laughs> yeah. like the Ghostbusters one looks like an absolute horror movie. Um but yeah, look up the Polish uh film posters, yeah. movie posters and uh check that out. Yeah. Um but uh yeah, and this movie, you know, circling back to After Hours, why we're here today, um, <laughs> this movie comes at a really interesting time in Martin Scorsese's career. How how uh, up are you on Scorsese himself, and how much of his body of work overall do you think you've, you've caught? Oh, I haven't seen enough um, at all, um, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by listing what I've actually seen. I've seen a few, quite a, sure. a few, but, you know, I've seen enough. Uh, that, uh, but you know, I, there's there's much more I need to see and want to see. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so this was. Uh, I'm glad to have sort of added that to the list of like, even though it's not like sort of like this highly regarded film or something. You know, this is more of a, a hidden gem, right? Of, of his of his body of work. Oh yeah. So well, yeah, at least to have that perspective yeah. on on what he was doing, and it's because it's such an it's. It, I mean, he's an artist through and through. Every frame is so meticulously done in all of his films. He knows what sh- what he needs to get um, and how to communicate it. And um, and this is, you know, this is just one of those like, I don't know. It's like it's it's efficient and it's and 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 it's it's stylistic and it's um, it's sharp. It's sharp. It's very yeah, sharp. It's sharp. It's you can tell it's not like an expensive movie to make in a, in a sense, you know. 
um, because it's a pretty straightforward kind of story that that deals more with like these crazy these crazy themes and, and events. Um, it's this black comedy, really. Like you, you sort of just have to laugh at things. That, you're not laughing at jokes; you're just laughing at like situations that are just so um, bananas. So, like, I appreciated like seeing this from him um, because I've really only seen any anything else, any of his other stuff. I've only seen. Uh, they were made after this film, so this is as far back as I've mm-hmm. done for him. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we'll change that. Yes, please. Oh well, that's not true. I, Raging Bull. I saw Raging Bull. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then, but there's that taxi driver, of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, other than the cinephiles, yeah. you know, there are Scorsese's done so many movies, yeah. um, and most people will turn to. You know, Raging Bull, maybe Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, uh, you know, some of his bigger, mm-hmm. you know, The Departed uh, kind of, I wouldn't say blockbuster, but much more high profile and major, majorly released films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of the other ones slip by. I mean, there's a couple that I haven't seen. I haven't seen Boxcar Bertha and I actually haven't seen New York, New York either. Mm. But I think I've seen pretty much everything else. And I'm, you know, I grew up a big Scorsese fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, now I am, have not been a big fan of most of what he's put out since The Departed. I think The Departed was very good, mm-hmm. but uh, I was not a fan of uh, Hugo. I was not a fan of um, The Irishman. Definitely, mm. I had major problems with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of those that you either love it or you hate it. Uh, Silence, I think, was ha- was interesting. It was kind of a callback to sort of the Last Temptation of Christ and almost like the mission as well. Um, uh, but um, yeah, what was the other one? Oh, Shutter uh, Shutter Island. Shutter Island with uh, which I think was fine. It was just a I didn't see what was so Scorsese about that movie. It felt like mm. you know a number of other people could have done that. It didn't have that stamp that he, you know, usually has. But, you know, he's in the category of Spielberg for me, that these guys are going to keep pumping out films, um, you know, every couple of years. But I don't think they're really... I know some people love The Irishman to death, but uh, I don't think they're anywhere near the caliber of what they used to be, they used to put out. Okay, yeah. Well, I think, you know, maybe like if they took you know, took their time and didn't, you know, rush from project to project to project really like, I don't know, maybe it would shape better, but it, that's more of a Spielberg thing than, than Scorsese though. Well, I could see that. I mean, yeah, I'm, I mean, they're, they're busy guys. And if they're not directing, they're producing something or other, they're involved in something, but I mean, you know, th- this Irishman came out on Netflix and then silence was three years earlier, I guess. Right. I mean, it was like, so, I mean, he, I'm sure there was some time with development on this one on Irishman, but I mean, yeah. your mileage may vary. Obviously, like depends on who where you are. Well, right? yeah, the Irishman took him like ten years to make, really, from you know the time he actually started it to when they finished. Oh, okay, but, so um, that goes back. That's been something he's been trying to make. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, it, it, that one does, but uh, I don't know. I I got a lot of problems with it. We'll save it for you know in in thirty years. Then we'll be able to look back at the Irish. Right when we can reconsinimize the twenty <laughs> the twenty twenties and the twenty exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right now we go you know the beginning of Scorsese all the way up through Gangs in New York. That's as far as we'll take it on this show. Okay, fine. 
Okay. Um, but yeah, this was, you know, where After Hours falls in. His 80s films are very, it feels like they're very almost experimental. Mm. You know, he, we talked uh, recently about the Hollywood New Wave movement and and how that was created in, in the late 60s and this, you know, all these young filmmakers and younger audiences coming in and, and audiences changing and the way the studios are, produ- the kinds of movies the studios are making are changing all over. And Scorsese is one of the biggest voices. Um, you know, it's it's Francis Ford Coppola, it's Spielberg, it's uh, Scorsese, it's Brian De Palma, William Friedkin, you know, those level directors and uh, you know the, their majorly released films are all you know art films for the most part i mean of course you have your exceptions with jaws and and star wars and uh but really like you know the godfather was a massive hit and that's a very you know i i consider that more of an art film than than a blockbuster studio release oh sure yeah <clears throat> and scorsese was able to kind of stick with you know, clearly he had a very fresh voice and vision for his films and and the style, you know, highly stylized, especially with Raging Bull. Um, and, you know, by the mid 80s, uh, you know, he had started to kind of he felt like he was losing his way a little bit. And, and the you know, he was getting it was he was moving a lot slower. He was taking more time to make um Movies more time than he felt comfortable with. It was just like, you know, a lot of times he talked about his cinematographers taking four hours to do a lighting setup, and mm. it was just you know moving way too slow a pace for him, and he would lose story elements in trying to just physically get the movie done. Mm. Um, you know, you, another movie you should check out is The King of Comedy because that is just that's a very it's a dark comedy. Uh, I I also just recently saw that for the first time in a really long time, and and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic, but it was, you know, it's coming out the same year as like Return of the Jedi, and and it's just a very different kind of movie. Um, and you know, he in, in the early '80s, his passion film was The Last Temptation of Christ, and mm-hmm. that's the movie he his heart is set on and what he wants to be doing, and. Um, you know, for one reason or another, he's, you know, basically writing and prepping and, and getting started on it for quite a while before it's shut down. Uh, it'll eventually be released in 1988, but that was the film he was going to, he, he was planning to do for 1985 release. Oh, right. Like, yeah, he was. In... Have you seen? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, yeah, like he, he, they were just about to start rolling on Last Temptation of Christ, right? Back then, and then it just kind of fell apart the studio shut it down is that the idea yeah they were pretty close they were pretty close and the yeah. studio shut like I, I think they were like location scouting i don't think they were like that close to actual filming yet but, but um, i'm sure they had like sets uh, they, going, they were definitely getting there sets and you know uh costumes and things you know people yeah uh, i think the early stages were were moving along yeah. but um you know, and that was the movie where he met up with uh, Michael Ballhouse, who had become one of his regular DPs. Mm-hmm. That was the movie he hired him for. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, when that fell apart, Michael Ballhouse was unsure if he was going to be working with Scorsese. He was so excited. You know, Scorsese was still one of the top names in the business, uh, and people really wanted to work on his projects. Um, he had not had uh, the big 
he hadn't come out with a movie like like Coppola did with Apocalypse Now, where he put his whole heart and soul and kind of left everything on the table with it. Mm-hmm. You know, Scorsese still had lots of juice in the tank. It was just, uh, you know, could he balance it with the right studio and and the right timing for him? But he hadn't like <laughs> spent all of his energy. Let's say, gotcha. Uh, so. Yeah, so he's you know trying to get Last Temptation of Christ made. At the same time, uh, an actor that uh, David and I are our, our dear personal longtime friend Griffin Dunn. Griffin, yes. <laughs> what a, Griffin, what a guy. Griff, what a yeah. <laughs> uh, he is a you know uh, I, I'm not going to say struggling actor, but he is a um, you know he's really trying to get his career going. It's not going as as quickly as he as he wants and mm-hmm. he's partnered up with uh amy robinson who was an actress who was actually in mean streets uh for martin scorsese which is his first you know big release he'd done uh a couple of films before that that had a much smaller release mm-hmm. but um so they're you know basically out of work actors who are trying to write and produce and and gather material that they could they could produce for themselves to act in. Um, so they're, you know, optioning material and, and they option a story called lies, uh, by Joseph Minion, which is the, you know, lays the groundwork for after hours. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I think later on it was called the night in Soho. Uh, but, uh, you know, they were attracted to his story about, you know, this really, like you said earlier, anxiety provoking, Story. He eventually made a trilogy that uh, he calls his anxiety trilogy. But um, oh, you know, so they they option this and are pitching it to. Uh, I believe they pitch it to Warner Brothers and and it. Uh, you know, they get a green light to to start. You know, actually working on a script, and they are they meet with uh, Tim Burton is actually the original director who's attached to this movie. Can you picture that? Yeah, I can't, I, I'd heard about that, and they, yeah, I mean uh, that'd be something. I, I I bet eighty-five Burton would would have would have taken this into a a fun little place. <laughs> I think it'd be a little more surreal, or <laughs> um, yeah, you know, just a little bit. I mean, I, I don't think he was. He wasn't like Tim Burton, but he was certainly uh, uh, he made very specific artistic choices that I would think um, are contrasted uh, to Martin Scorsese, let's say. So, yeah, that'd be something. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think, you know, especially early days, Tim Burton, you know, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Tim Burton could have it would have been interesting to see what he would have done with this. Yeah. Cause I think visually like the, like there's a lot you could do and, and Scorsese did uh, visually with the film. Yeah. Yeah. There, the, the, I, there's, there's a lot of, you can tell a lot of interpretation to the script that you could really play with. So I like, and I feel mm-hmm. like this has like a solid stamp. Like this is, this is, these are very thoughtful choices in this film. Like I think, I think, Scorsese kept, uh, kept, you know, he he wanted to like, he makes you th- feel like you're safe, like when you know when like things are kind of looking well for Paul, like all right, if he just does this, he can go home. If he just does this, he, and then things like always take this little turn and gets a little weird, and these characters are that he keeps meeting are 
a little bit stranger and stranger. So it's like he keeps you like in a he finds you in like a safe zone for a second, and then he's like, then then the twist comes in the script, and then he you know he he escorts yeah. you along. So um, <clears throat> so yeah, the the choices he makes with this, like I definitely feel like are so engaging, um, because there's. It, yeah, I don't know. It's the weirdness that gets me without it without it being too weird. It's it's almost like it, it seems like all of this could happen. It's just so inexplicable and 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 crazy all at once. Well, the characters are seem like they're all pushed to extremes. Yeah. You know, like of course this general plot could and does happen all the time where you know, Paul Hackett, Griffin Dunn plays Paul Hackett mm-hmm. who's a a data processor, basically, right? Very mundane job yeah. that we see in the opening of the film. And over the course of one night, you know, he he tries to go on a date with uh, Rosanna Arquette, mm-hmm. who plays Marcy. And one thing leads to another, and he has he's stuck across town from the, from where he lives and can't get home. And one situation just leads right to another, and it, he. It's like he he digs. It's not even that he's digging his hole. Um, it's like a hole is being dug for him deeper and deeper everywhere he goes. Yeah, yeah. The he like he kind of bops into these people's lives and somehow they grossly affect everything he's trying to do <laughs> just by doing their thing. Uh, and he gets caught yeah. up in it. Uh, and Griffin, I and Griffin does. I. Th- he, He's definitely like perfect fit for this. I th- I really enjoy him in this, um, because he he doesn't play it like too manic or too like kind of crazed about everything. I mean, in, you kind of follow along like he's just he's just sort of adapting to all this stuff. But you know, he's he's kind of like a, he's really just a normal kind of plain guy. Um, and you know, he's got a singular focus. He wants to go on a date. He wants to spend a night with this girl, and then it's like once things are get a little wacky, it's like, all right, he's going to go home. Like where he knows he's safe. And then suddenly it's just, um, so he, he, the comedy's so subtle, um, when you're, you're following along with them. Um, mm-hmm. so like, yeah, I mean, he, he has to, he basically has to play it straight against all these other like wacky characters. It's, it's like an, it's like wonderland. Like it's just a whole different world for him. Yeah, it is. He's and he's he's definitely a fish out of water, and you know, part of it too is Griffin Dunn. It was great that they were able to keep him, you know, and that was part of the pitch that yeah. he, you know, he was going to star in this movie. Uh-huh. Um, that he looks, you know, he looks like an average guy. He's not Tom Cruise. He's not, uh, you know, Paul Newman. He's not. He doesn't have those like that larger than life persona yeah um he you know it keeps the viewer identified with paul hackett that you do you sympathize with him like you you know you get where he's coming from and he doesn't really do anything that maybe you wouldn't do to make his situation worse right right i mean things are just again it's just the the odds of like all these things happening at once that even within the movie, he finds, he finds someone to finally listen to him. And he monologues to this guy about here's, here's what happened to me tonight. Get, get a load of this. And just him unpacking it, (laughs) even though it's like cut, like, you know, you, you just get the sense that time goes on as he's doing it the way it's cut. And, it is it's so laughable like once you sort of piece it all together because you're watching it 
and you're kind of along for the ride and, and you're aware of everything that happened but con- condensing that story down into like a, a five minute like monologue about what went on um, is just so hilarious <laughs> and he, that's that's the one time he kind of gets to break it all down because <laughs> um, like leading up to that monologue he finally like he, I, this, I don't know if he collapses to the ground but he looks up to the heavens and just says what do you want from me i just want to go home like, oh yeah <laughs> yeah you have your your precursor to the shawshank shot <laughs> yeah exactly it's it's called the dun it's it's the it's the, <laughs> we got to get a dun <laughs> the dun get the dunner <laughs> um, um yeah so yeah so while you know while they're in pr- early prep for this movie and Tim Burton's supposed to be doing it Scorsese's trying to do Last Temptation of Christ which falls you know the whole the whole deal for that movie falls through and they put it on the shelf for a little while Scorsese turns back to you know his pile of scripts that he had been considering and and starts going through them again and he finds the script for After Hours and really sees like this I could do something with this so he calls Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn up and you know says that he's interested in it yeah now their problem is they've already got Tim Burton like on the hook yeah uh so you know I imagine that's a very awkward conversation that and this is not remember this is not Tim Burton from you know even after Batman Tim Burton hadn't made really a big name for himself uh I think he had a a growing reputation based on the, you know, the, his early films. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't a, a household name yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, uh, amazingly, he said, you, you're telling me Martin Scorsese wants to do this movie. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yep. He's like, okay, then I'm going to, I'm going to step out. He can have it. <laughs> he, he honored the talent of Scorsese. Like he's not going to get in the way of yeah. him. Right. Like, that's like that's those are those that's an artist right there. That's what an honorable yeah. and 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 just like what a thing to do, um, because who knows? It's a rare, it's a rare thing in in this business yeah. for sure. Yeah, I, I, it's you know if this was a bigger if this was a bigger deal in in a lot of different ways. But like yeah, imagine you're working on a project and then like I don't know yeah you're directing and you're just trying to like you know you're you're making your way through your own career and then someone you madly respect like actually wants to do the thing you're doing like uh how much reverence and how much like do you honor that that person you look up to or admire as a as a creative you know like Mm -hmm. maybe it's just that's just what it's supposed to be you know it's this is supposed to be a scorsese's film so i gotta get out of the way Um, yeah so good for good for tim burton just doing that that's yeah pretty incredible like stepping aside i don't know it's fascinating yeah uh, it's honorable it's the honorable thing and now i don't think you'd see that you just see lawsuits and um you know the movies getting held up over it and yeah and then you've got animosity and then the creative end but you know here they were thankfully able to avoid that mm-hmm. and uh you know then, then griffin dunn was kind of nervous because here comes scorsese who's you know probably the most respected uh, filmmaker, true filmmaker at that time, yeah. Um, who who would survive the seventies? Uh, but you know, he's like, well, he's gonna come in and he's gonna want De Niro. Like, uh, you know, part of the deal is like, I'm Paul Hackett. I play Paul Hackett, yeah. and Scorsese was like, oh yeah, yeah, totally. Like, yeah, I I read it that way. I didn't think we needed to even talk about it. 
Oh, cool. So, <laughs> um, but it did break the streak of, of uh, Scorsese De Niro films. How many in a row was it before, right up to this? Was it? Uh, they did Mean Streets, uh, let's see, Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Raging Bull, King of Comedy. So five, yeah. uh, unless I'm missing one. No, I think you're five right. in a row. Yeah, wow. Uh, and it was and it was about a ten year period, a little bit longer, I think, mm-hmm. um, where they were working together, and and I think they would. I don't think they'd reunite till Goodfellas in ninety, and then they did Goodfellas, Cape Fear, and then Casino. I think that's all right. That's all correct. Yeah, nice work. <laughs> and then now, you know, you got DiCaprio. It's like a race between DiCaprio and De Niro. Right. Who's who's really Scorsese's guy? Right, right. He's got all these guys. All these guys. Yeah. Want to work with all them. the guys. All the guys. <laughs> Come in. Uh, but, yeah, and, and Scorsese saw a lot of opportunity in this film. You know, it was a lower budget. It wasn't a big movie. He could do it quickly. He could do it the way he wanted to do it. It takes place all overnight. So that's it's a complete, almost a complete night shoot, yep. which is when he preferred to shoot anyway. I mean – during the day, it's like when you're on a film or a TV show, uh, you know, you're always you're always answering questions. You're always, you know, you have meetings through lunch. You have meetings and phone calls that you have to do. You know, some stuff changes throughout production. So you're you're doing casting decisions for some of the smaller roles. You're still doing rewrites. You're maybe approving other locations or other changes that are coming up. So... You know, you never get a moment's peace. Yeah. Uh, when you're shooting a movie at night, like the phone's not ringing. Right. When you're shooting, whoever's there is that's who you're with. You're not getting calls from the studio, uh, you know, all night long. So yeah, the business is you know the the day to day business is shut down all over all over town. So you know all this stuff has to be figured out ahead of time, just so you can you can just do your work in peace. So. Uh, yeah, that, mm-hmm. it's got that's got to be way better than having to, to know that you have that peace uh, of mind, um, and plus just to keep that energy going. Like this is a movie that's happening at night and with that this this growing desperation and tension, and you know turning everyone into nocturnal people um, to film it. You know, I think uh, that adds a different energy to it because yeah, you could mm-hmm. you could do a lot of the stuff that they did all the interiors you could do you know a week a couple at the back end or the front end and you know during the day people can live their lives but um to 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 insist upon uh night shoots the entire time um no matter what you were filming i mean i that's, i think that's a great choice that's such a uh, it adds that extra level that you know the actors don't have to stretch too hard to get to that place i think you know they obviously they work mm-hmm. hard they know what they're doing but that extra element of it's four in the morning we got three hours till sun two hours till sunrise and we've been going yeah. all night and this is this is a tough place to be let's go <laughs> i love that yeah yeah and this was uh, an opportunity for him to you know get back to his roots and feel like you know like you know, Mean Streets. It's got it's got the kind of vibe, the same kind of vibe that Mean Streets has. It's mm-hmm. you know, a st- we talked a little bit about this uh, on prior episodes, but this is a real street film. It's out there in you know in New York City, like on the streets, all you know across town. Um, it, it's just got a very good energy, and it's so visual 
um, you know, he was thankfully able to keep uh, Michael Ballhouse connected with this project. And Ballhouse was super excited to work with Scorsese and and what a difference he made because he he moved like 10 times faster than the other DPs that Scorsese had been working with. So, you know, Scorsese wanted to move faster. Ballhouse would have a ready a shot ready in like 30 minutes. Nice. So, you know, there I, I think after the first day, Scorsese says he didn't go back to his trailer in between shots <laughs> at all. Like they were just moving that fast yeah. and 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 that's the way he he wants it. Once he gets a rhythm, like you want to keep going and going and going. You don't want to lose that till till the day is over. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, those yeah those long sets and everything. You just slow that production. You just you have a longer schedule, like you know. But if you can keep the energy of what these scenes are and what you're doing, um, it's just it's just a better for performances and 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 really you know everyone's job. <laughs> it's just better, you know. You know, and I and this is such a you know the visuals are so important in this movie. The camera moves. I mean, it feels like the camera is always moving, mm-hmm. even just subtly. It's it's always moving. Um, it's never steady, uh, and it's keeping that that energy, that dreamlike energy, because nothing's ever nothing's ever still. Um, you know, you've got these. Scorsese in his early days used to do these very like intense zooms that are uh, you know there's one shot mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, there's a, there's many shots that I love but there's one shot of kind of this quick push in on uh, Rosanna Arquette that's just beautiful and she kind of just winks like she's winking at Paul oh, yeah, yeah. but uh, when they're in his apartment it's just it's a beautiful shot and there's so many like that mm-hmm. um, and you know that visual style just really um, adds to that dreamlike quality, uh, and and it's a hard movie to get that tone. It, this is unlike a lot of other, even dark comedies. I think, you know, if I were to pair this with a movie, I'd probably pair it with like Brazil with Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Mm. Have you seen that? Um, I've seen a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, but it's a. It's another one that's that's got very much a dreamlike quality and flowing just from one crazy, insane situation to another. And here uh, we've got, you know, the situation gets out of hand fairly quickly. I mean, the night starts for Paul Hackett at, I think, like, it's like 1 a.m. or something when he first goes out to the diner, right? Uh, no, I think it was – well, no, he, he was at the diner. Is it earlier? But he was at the diner, and just because I watched it recently, I made note of it too. Like when he gets back from the diner, it's like a, it's after 11.30, and he calls her. And then when he finally gets down downtown and then waits for her and has this – you know, meets her roommate, and then by the time she gets back from where she is, it's after like 1.30. So it's like two hours after he even made the call to actually seeing her in person. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So the night and that's, and that's, that's just when the night gets started. Like things, things it's only, it's only one 30 when things start to get really weird. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, so his night, it's, it's, it's a long night. We're with him this whole time. He's, he's bouncing around. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so yeah, but like, yeah, the fact that it's, He's just this regular dude. He's, he he has work in the morning, you know, the next day. Uh, as we learn later on, you know, he goes to his job at the uh, at the end of the movie. That you know, he's mm-hmm. he just he just had like sort of a one track mind. He meets meets pretty girl, 
he's, he's got to go downtown. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll be there soon. <laughs> um, so yeah, late night, late night for Mr. Paul Hackett. Yeah. But it's not a, uh, it's not a film that, that is out of the ordinary. I mean, what no. he does in the beginning of the movie is this, you know, data processor and he's unwinding at night. He's a single guy. He's, yeah. you know, reading, uh, reading at a, at a diner and meets Marcy and, <clears throat> decides to, uh, you know, they kind of are a little flirty with each other, and yeah. she gives him her number of of, uh, of actually her roommate, and he wants to buy a paperweight, right? Wasn't the uh, yeah that was that's actually the excuse to uh, call? Yeah, yeah, like a, a very specific uh, bagel and cream cheese uh, made out of plaster in Paris <laughs> paperweight. <laughs> so yeah, it's like absurd art piece. Um, that's that was the yeah the excuse. Um, that she willingly gave, you know, call, call her. <laughs> I'll be there. So yeah, so you know, so he wants to date this girl. It's not like yeah. he's not committing any crimes. Um, no, of course. And and how about when he's checking out of the uh, diner, the the teller at the uh, cash register? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you catch that guy. He just like does this crazy like spin move. Yeah. out of nowhere, kind of. David Lynchian almost. Yeah, like they notice him moving about strangely, and he's like clearly like practicing dance moves or something. Um, and that's like the first indication of like this. There's this just wild world happening around someone like Paul at all times, and it's only through like when the camera decides to show you it, show you these things, that you you have an awareness. And and most of the time you're you're learning along with Paul because there's. Yeah. You know, so and there's lots of different shots like that where he's suddenly aware of like things that have nothing to do with him, but they're still like weird, and just part of like the the energy of the city. You know, it's very New York. I think. You know, I think. Yeah. That's the point. You know, I think I I can tell why this script like sort of resonated with Scorsese like that. That this is touching on a certain like time in his life while he in his career, um, and you know. I don't know that the city itself has its its own energy, and then like this is a little pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's part of it. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, you know, and these characters are very very intense. I mean, and that's you know, I, I feel this movie like the movie itself might as well be on on coke. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, it's just got this kind of frantic pace to it, and these characters are are so extreme like no one is really um just kind of like a laid-back cool you know relaxed person except paul who's very average like everyone else that he encounters is some kind of extreme Um, yep yep exactly you know everyone outside of his job like we see bronson pinchot in the in the very beginning and they're just you can tell everyone there is just doing their mundane boring data processing job Mm mm-hmm yeah, they're. It, uh, it's not a great environment to be in at, at any point. It's boring. Yeah, what a contrast. Then when the when the sun goes down, and you're out after hours, the rules have changed. Yeah. Which Dick Miller, welcome back to the podcast. Dick Miller is uh, in, yeah in the diner. Dick Miller uh, or in the cafe or whatever. He you know he he the coffee's on the house because the rules are. Di- I think he says it's the rules are different. It's after hours, something like that. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Which is like the most explicit like thing to the audience about the weirdness of of living in New York City. 
Yeah, and the whole cast is so amazing. There, there's so many like great character actors. Mm-hmm. Um, no major, st- unless I'm missing it, there's no major stars in the movie. It's all character actors who yeah. were up and coming at the time or, you know, there's a couple of familiar faces from Scorsese's earlier work, some of the guys who are in Taxi Driver and Raging Bull in smaller parts. But, um, yeah. you know, for the most part, this is, these are all fresh faces. Um, we talked about Catherine O'Hara in our, in our Wyatt Earp episode, mm-hmm. um, John Hurd, so a little Home Alone mm-hmm. uh, prequel here maybe. Right. You think this could be a prequel to Home Alone? Yeah, I feel like this is they get together at the end of this movie and they move to the suburbs in Illinois. <laughs> I think that's... And, <laughs> and have Kevin McAllister. And have Kevin, I mean, the timing works, I think. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> this could be just set a few years earlier in the in the early eighties. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know we meet you know along the way we meet, Dick Miller's great. You know we only see him in I think two scenes, and he's got this weird fascination for Rosanna Arquette. Like, is he is he in love with her? You think? Yeah, like well, and I, I'm sure like he she spends time there. Um, so they have an existing relationship. They she know they know each other's name, and I think Griffin or you know Paul notices it and is almost like with, along with the audience you get to question it. Like, did they have a physical um, relationship in the past or a one time thing, or is there something else there? And it's not it's not a big deal, but it is something like you know, it's another thing for Paul to just sort of like raise an eyebrow about like, what, like, what is this woman's mm-hmm. life? Like, what is this? Uh, yeah. Well, she's so, she's so fascinating. Like she's, mm-hmm. you know, immediately starts telling him these bizarre stories about her life and he's sort of transfixed on her. Yeah. Um, and you know, they go up to her apartment where they meet Kiki Bridges played by Linda Fiorentino. Yeah, and she's great. Um, of course that, the the famous shot where Linda drops the keys down out of the, you know, their, um, out of their apartment down to Paul so he can get in the building. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great shot. That's like this, you know, follows the keys, like rushing down as they're dropped out of the window. Yeah. Um, and there's some kind of symbolism where he's always dropping the keys or missing. Like he, he can't handle keys. Like he's always mishandling them. Hmm. And that's like, you know, I think that's just symbolic of he's not able to, he's not able to make it work like this whole night. He's, he's missing it. Um, but that's a great, you know, famous shot from, for this movie. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and she's a bizarre character, you know, he's always, he's always going somewhere. He's, and when he gets there, what he was looking for isn't there. Mm -hmm. And then something happens to change in order to get what he's looking for, he's got to do something else. Yeah. It's just, he keeps, these obstacles keep coming up. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so when he goes upstairs, Marcy's not there. Yeah. So he's got to hang out with, with Kiki Bridges and do some plastering. And, <laughs> and it's, you know, she, and she's very straightforward. I do. I really do like the energy where uh, between them too. Like she's just so matter of fact about her, what she's doing in her art like he's just this strange guy out of nowhere and she just treats him like hey like do you want to even do this like she she asks him to start working on the the art piece while she answers the phone yeah and he's just yeah and he's just like wait but this is yours i can't do this you know but yeah she just he she envelops him into her, her world 
for a brief moment and it and it you know he he goes from wearing this his white shirt and red tie to this you know he she he borrows a black striped shirt that he wears for the rest of the movie um Mm-hmm. The and, and really the black shirt looks great in that suit, <laughs> but um right. But uh, yeah. it is almost like if you're if you're going to be out after hours, like this this is this is the uniform. You know, you need you can't be the guy who was at work. Uh, you're you're gonna right. you're doing something different. So it, it is yeah. it's like a real obvious like you got to look the part, even though you don't belong here. Um, which there's other instances of that when he goes to the the Berlin mm-hmm. bar and all of that. Um. Uh, he he's not this is not his world like he he there are all these signs and symbols and people telling him he doesn't really belong and oh yeah and he yeah. and then he realizes it when all these people are just they're just kind of being themselves you know just like in wonderland mm-hmm. like the the mad hatter is the mad hatter and the cheshire cat is just that's who they are and they're weird like they all these characters are strange mm-hmm. to the main character um and, yeah, and it's like a slow build, a slow rollout of that. Um, yeah, I, I feel like uh, like having seen it this to review for the podcast, I enjoyed it a lot more the second time around um, because it, the first time is yeah, there's is a little more like there's there, I think it's too stimulating. There's not I couldn't discover everything about it, you know, just in one pass. Oh no! There's definitely this is the kind of movie you definitely need multiple viewings. I mean, there's there's a lot kind of underneath going on, and then especially like if you know where he's going, there's other little things you pick up along the way. Yeah. Not necessarily clues, but just you know he's just headed in the wrong direction the entire time, and he has no idea. Yeah. Well, like just even the um, the taxi yeah. ride down to Soho, it you know isn't it? Oh yeah. Isn't that yeah. just like it's like it's so. Uh, it's, it's it's violent. It's sped up. I mean, it's sped up. It's fast. Yeah. It's it's dangerous. It's like he may as well be tumbling down a hole into Wonderland. Like it's that mm-hmm. same thing. Like it's he's going through a portal uh, that he did not expect. And you know his security to get home was that this is twenty dollar bill that he loses immediately. Right. So he doesn't have the way home. He doesn't have the key to get home. Uh, like you're saying, like keys are supposed to unlock the doors and get you to where you need to go and all that. And yeah, he, he keeps losing them. You're, I never thought about the key, uh, symbology. Um, yeah. Yeah. Shows up later. Well, cause then there's the key mix up later on with, with John Hurd and, yeah. and you know, he can't, he, had, he loses, he loses access to, you know, like you said, he lost his, the only cash that he had. Yeah. So, you know, that is a key to him getting home. Yeah. He no longer has that. Uh, then later on he'll lose, or temporarily lose the keys to his apartment in this weird trade-off <laughs> that he does. Yeah. But we'll get there in a minute. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so he finally, like, you know, meets up with... Marcy comes home, and then he just wants to, you know, I think he wants to stay in with her, and, and they're in her bedroom, and and she starts kind of revealing more about herself, and he's starting to kind of question, like, who is this... Who actually is this person? Yeah. Uh, and that's when they then then but then they're on the move again. So it's like there's always movement happening that he's oh now they go out to the diner and that's where they meet Dick we see Dick Miller mm-hmm. uh, and then they come back to her place and he you know sees uh, uncovers more about her and these burn victims and this horrible you know 
six hour rape story that she tells him that is yeah. horrifying. Um, but you know, there's something, something about her, something off that like, is that really the story? Like she's getting stranger and stranger as the night goes on. Yeah. So he just bails out. <laughs> So then he leaves. Yeah, he it, it, and and rudely, like you know, he doesn't. He he kind of tricks her into leaving the leaving the room, and just so he can escape, you know, just kind of like this woman who invited him over, you know, like mm-hmm. then she doesn't know him, and um, so she he he punks out, and it's just so rude. It's you know, but he he was only thinking about his own safety, um, and he thought he'd have an easy easy time getting out of there, and uh, unfortunately. The city after hours is going to do all it can to keep you there. <laughs> do you think that you know that they, they smoke a joint together, right? Uh, or what she says is a joint, and he says it's not. Yeah. But do you think it? You think there's a possibility that was like laced with something because he gets very frantic and and you know upset like while they're having that joint. Uh, I I don't know because like I thought maybe. I, th- I like yeah his turn of his emotions getting like sort of amped up and angry i feel like it was i, f- I feel like that was his play like he had to get to that level because she maybe would only respond to that that level of like emotion to get her out of the room so he can leave like i i feel like he had already planned at a like as soon as they're smoking that it was like i gotta i gotta get the hell out of here this isn't even this isn't even weed like so this mm-hmm. and so I, I don't know. I feel like he was putting. I feel like he was putting on an act um, to get out. But I, I don't know yeah. if he was actually. Maybe he really was kind of affected by it as uh, the rest of the film kind of plays out because it, you know, yeah. he's kind of like lost. But I, I don't know. It doesn't. I. I but again, too, I, I feel like it's a slow build. Like one problem after another. All these tasks. All these people bouncing into his life. I feel like it just kind of naturally builds to something. So um, I feel mm-hmm. I feel like it was a ruse, but I, you know, I don't know. That, that's my, that's my thought on that. Yeah. Well, you know, either way, it's an excuse to get him out of that situation. And, you know, he goes across the, right across the street to the bar or like down the street to uh, a bar where he meets um, Terry Gar, who's a waitress and John Hurd, who's the bartender yeah. and just, Yet even more strange characters. Although John Hurd doesn't seem strange really at first, right? Uh, he seems like an average guy, but this whole bar has just a very weird vibe and energy. And um, Terry Gar is like, you know, pretty, uh, pretty not aggressively, but pretty forward with him mm-hmm. um, that she, you know, wants him to like rescue her for some reason. That she hates her job and. And needs to get out of there. Yeah. But he doesn't want anything to do with her. Yeah, I mean, of course, like, you know, he just needed, he had, he left the apartment and failed at the subway. You know, the, the he goes to the subway to go home. The fares went up at midnight, though, after he had already left uh, his own apartment. So he had, and he didn't have any money. You know, he didn't have enough money. He had some change. So now, so now he just, he has to get out from under the rain. And uh, he goes mm-hmm. in that bar. And just it's it's a New York bar after two a.m. and it's it's um and Terry Gar like he doesn't really say much to her and then she leaves a note like help I hate my job or whatever like this, yeah 
it's such a strange thing. He's just some guy, like, and this is just she's just some girl in her beehive and her like her yellow. It almost it's like a uniform uh, kind of thing at this like. Oh, she's straight out of the like f- you know fifties, really. Yeah, she doesn't belong there. <laughs> like she's out of time. Um, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, John Hurt's character, he seems like a normal dude. And then, but then he, like, when he beats up the cash register and some, like, so angry. Well, yeah, he. It's so funny to me. Yeah, he agrees. Right. <laughs> he agrees to give, you know, just as a as a good guy to, like, give Paul Hackett money to go get, a, you know, get on the train to go home. Yeah. But he, then he suddenly he can't get in the register. The register's broken. And, yeah, he loses it, like, just, you know, kicking the register and everything. Yeah. Uh, but then that leads to the next because the register won't open. It leads to the next thing of like he gives Paul his keys to go up to his apartment to go get the keys for the register. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, Paul can't just do this. He encounters more people along the way. There's some kind of burglaries going on in the neighborhood. And because no one knows him. Yeah. You know, he's immediately suspected as the thief. And doesn't really have any proof <laughs> yeah. that he's not. Yeah, you can't prove that he isn't. And then, um, oh, and and by the way, when he gets up to the, to, I think I think the character's name is Tom, right? Is uh, John Hurt's character? Yeah, he's at a, yeah. he just wants to wash his face, which he does a couple times in the film, and he he flushes <laughs> yeah. a tissue. But like, of course, the toilet floods, like uh, a bunch of blue water, and it's just like this. Of course, this absurd thing happens that he can't control. Right. And it's this, like, this light comedic moment. And you don't know if he <laughs> cleans it up or just leaves it or whatever. And he just he's just trying to get out of there. And, yeah, more characters sort of become suspicious. So um, he's definitely... Well, and... Yeah, go ahead. On top of that, like, he... As to prove... For Paul to prove that he's an honorable guy, he gives... Tom, he leaves his his own right. keys at the bar right. with Tom. So he's, you know, as an act of good faith. Yeah. So, you know, after, but it takes him so long in Tom's apartment to, to get back that Tom has closed the bar. Right, yeah. And we don't know why at first, yeah. but the bar is closed. Yeah. Oh, because he does have a stop off. So, he goes, because doesn't, yeah, he goes back to go see Mercy, doesn't he? Uh and uh, uh, no, after I think afterward, I think it's after this that he goes back to see Marcy. So, well, that was the um, oh, what was the delay though? Oh, you're right. No, no, you're right. You're right. Oh, yeah, because he right. thinks yeah. he, he stops. He thinks he thought he saw the thieves, uh, who were played by Cheech and Chong, um, right? But and gen- and they were actually outside uh, Marcy's apartment for legitimate reasons and and bought a television and the sculpture. Uh, legit, right? But, the one that he had, was making with Kiki. Yeah, like so. You know, so it, 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 he has this little side mission. That's the thing. It's like all these little side missions and, and quests just to get to the next point. So yeah, he's he's all yeah. delayed, and then Tom can't wait. To, you know, for whatever reason that he doesn't know right away. Well, yeah, he he brings you know he brings the sculpture back up to Marcy's apartment, and while he's up there, he goes to apologize, but now he finds that Marcy's dead. Yeah. She just she had she <laughs> taken the she taken a bunch of uh, sleeping pills, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, he calls the cops. Kiki isn't there anymore. 
He doesn't call the cops. He, you know. Yeah, she's gone to some bar, to the, the Berlin bar, right? Yeah, or Club Berlin. Uh-huh. And then so he he writes on pieces of toilet paper, dead body, and like has an arrow pointing to where Marcy's dead. So when they they <laughs> yeah. do arrive, they can find it. It's so absurd. Like, yeah. This is strange because he has to get his keys back. Like he's got to go. Like right. He he doesn't have time for this shit. <laughs> like, and he doesn't want to be. Yeah. A part so of that's it. so. Right. So that's when he goes back to the bar. It's closed. You know, Terry Gar's sort of waiting outside in the rain for him, takes him in, and they have, you know, another bizarre situation where she's, you know, she's trying to seduce him. Yeah. But he is not going for it. And he's not kind to her, like, at all. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, isn't, he's just, he just needs a phone. Like, he doesn't care. Like, he, it, it, things have already reached a point. I mean, he just, the girl he was going to spend the night with, is dead like and he discovered her yeah um does a weird though it does the it's a weird moment where he kind of inspects her body you know lifting the covers off um mm-hmm. and is reminded of the the skull like that's how he remembers he's got the key at tom's apartment because and he doesn't have his own keys because uh, of a keychain that resembles the the tattoo she has on her thigh so it's like yeah th- you start to get a sense of like things are connecting a little bit uh, a little bit more um, it, it my and then Terry Gar is so like she's got like twenty twenty cans of Aquanet like in the background yeah. of her apartment, yeah. and he notices yeah the is that the apartment with the mouse traps around the bed like there's just yes. lots of mouse yep. traps around the bed like and they're lit very specifically I love it like. It, he yeah. Was like, what is this? Where, where am I? What is this place? Yeah, it's so it's so strange. Um, well, and then he just he he abandons. You know, he bails out of Terry Gar again, right? He just he just takes off. Yeah. Well, the the bar opens. He can hear it open. Yeah. And he's like, all right, I'll be right back. And you know, the attempt to get his keys back, and then, and then he. Well, yeah, he goes, he goes down, and 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 Tom is back, and they talk about, you know, he closed the bar because he went to go look for Paul because Paul was taking so long, and then he, oh, yeah. um, right when he's about to get his keys back, the phone rings, and that's Tom getting a call that his his girlfriend is dead. Yeah, who, who is Marcy? Marcy yeah, <laughs> and he freaks out. He has a freak out, and then. I don't. The, I don't think. And then Paul never got his keys back, and he goes right back over to Terry Gar's apartment i think directly right and then uh it's yeah it's so strange because it's like all these weird characters uh are part of it and it seems like for the most part it's it's mostly women are like this and i don't think it's anything specific it's just like he's a man who is looking to spend a a night with a woman and then he meets multiple women of very different uh types like just in terms of personality and and lifestyle and they mm-hmm. they all sort of cause trouble but it's then it's also all the other male characters um cause trouble for him too whether it's uh, like tom is his last ally i think until the very end of the movie when he yeah he joins the mob of people looking for him but um yeah but the the burglars who who messed with his life the the apartment people um that you know suspected him in the first place mess with him so like he has no friends he has no nobody there to protect him even though a lot of them will act like they are um they all have something they they want from him too um 
because uh and then it's because it, Catherine O'Hara is the last woman he meets and she just has a bizarre backstory and just bizarrely like yeah. shares details this about her ice life. cream truck <laughs> yeah her and her ice cream truck yeah and she because she's <laughs> He's in the apartment to use the phone, and he's just like, "You won't believe the night I had." And she says, "I drive a Mister Softy truck. It's and it's all my, it's all mine." He's like, "No, no, I didn't, I didn't ask what you did. I, I'm just telling you, I've, I've had a terrible <laughs> night." And she's just talking, <laughs> and then messes with him while he's trying to memorize a phone number, and just laughing about it. Yeah. And he's like, "What's wrong with you? <laughs> like, what is the matter with you?" And, um, yeah, he 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 gets to a certain point where he just sort of cracks. I think, um. Yeah. And, uh, well, and then yeah, when when she uh, she offers to give him a ride home, and as they're walking down to her car, she sees the flyer, uh, which is a picture of the burglar, which is it's his, Griffin, which is uh, Paul Hackett, right? Because Terry Gar. So then she turns on him, and and like suddenly she, right? Terry Gar had made the drawing of him. Yeah. Because she and like she, he, he was um, saying like he had like you won't believe the night, and she was like drawing his picture and like tell me about it like she wants to like serve him like you know like take care of this man like you know whatever it takes to keep him there um kind of thing and then she's eventually betrayed and sort of feels like yeah like he's probably the burglar or at least wants to get him in trouble and because she has access to a Mm -hmm. xerox store she can make flyers immediately and put them up all over the neighborhood (laughs) which is just and then it leads to everyone in the apartment buildings who uh, they go on the hunt for whoever the the thief might be, and then the p- posters lead them down that direction. So I mean, how many yeah. how many more things could go wrong for Paul? <laughs> like yeah. Every... Well, and it gets worse and worse because yeah. Catherine O'Hara suddenly turns and is like the complete villain of the movie. Like she's leading the mob, yeah. uh, aggressively, like trying to hunt him down, yeah. and uh, he eventually runs to. Club Berlin, where he's trying to catch up with Kiki uh, to see if she can help him. But um, when they get in there, it's like it's Mohawk. He has this weird interaction with the bouncer, and then once you get in, it's Mohawk night, and they're you know they're all trying to force him into you know having this you know shaving his head, and mm-hmm. so he's in and out of Club Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so strange. And then finally, he makes his way back there later, you know, right towards the end. And meets up with um, with Verna Bloom, yeah. who uh, you know is the, like one person who truly like is his rescuer. You know, so it seems like yeah, like she um, she can protect him because the mob is now busting into the bar. They want to search everywhere. Like you know, they're they're like lawless. You know, they they're not do, they're not like saying, "Hey, have you seen this guy?" No, okay, and turn around. Like they want to search and find him. So it it's intense. It's He's being hunted, <laughs> and yeah, and there's nothing he would ever be able to do to convince them that he's not the burglar, right? Uh, because he's made every he's made a lot of different people mad at him just by existing in their world. Yeah, yeah, and he really hasn't done anything to deserve any of this. Like he really didn't like make a mistake in the beginning of the movie that causes all this to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like it's just happening to him. Yeah, there's no it's just fake karma to it, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and the ending of the movie was a big problem uh, for Scorsese the whole way through. Like, he really didn't know how they were going to end this movie. And they had a bunch of different ideas um, proposed. And one of them was that when he meets up with June at the end, 
he and the mob is coming into the club, you know, they're in her like a weird apartment that's in the basement. And um, he actually climbs up into her womb and then she leaves the bar and goes out on the, I think the West Side Highway or you know, one of, you know, some location like that and, and births him out on the, on the highway. <laughs> so he could escape <laughs> that way. <laughs> so he could escape. Uh, I think that was a wise decision not to do that. Yeah, that would have really changed <laughs> things, I think. I don't think it would fit. Yeah. Don't, it'd be just too weird. Too Lynchian. Well, then you're getting kind of Cronenberg-ish. Oh, yeah, Cronenberg. um, and, and r- real far away from Scorsese. But, uh, you know, and then the other ending, they, they um, you know, she eventually, the way he gets out of the whole situation is that here comes the paper mache uh, concept again, that she, you know, makes him into a statue, basically, a paper mache statue. She hides him inside of one. Yeah. But then he's stuck. <laughs> yeah, he can't get out. And when she, uh, right, when she leaves the room, here come Cheech and Chong again, uh, because they are they are the thieves, right? Yeah, they are. The- like even though they had, even though they had bought the sculpture and the TV from Kiki, they were also the thieves. Yeah, they kept showing up, stealing stuff, and and filling their van, and then. Because he had lost the statue, he sees one perfectly there. He's like, "Great, here's my here's my sculpture," and, and they, they carry him through <laughs> so a manhole, yeah. like, and put him in the van. And that was the other ending of the movie. Was just like they ride. He rides off in the van in the statue, and that's where it ends. Yeah. Um, but his, uh, of course, the editor on the film was his usual editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, and and. She's done, I think, all of his films and a, a very big part of his success and, and the way his, you know, his, the way he tells his stories. Um, her boyfriend and future husband at the time was the director, Michael Powell, and he's the one who suggested, uh, he's like, oh, no, he should end up back at work. He should end up where he started. Yeah. Like, that's that's your ending. Yeah. Uh, so it's just another thing, element of chance that, you know, as Cheech and Chong are like, you know, they get all the way across town. They're driving like maniacs and the film is sped up again. Uh, they take a turn and the back door pops open. The statue crashes out and opens, you know, breaks open. Mm-hmm. And Paul is unearthed and he's right at the gates of his office again. Yeah. And it's morning time. And it's morning. So uh, he ends up right where he started and i think i think it's probably the most appropriate ending i think you you wouldn't want to see harm come to paul or you know or him being taken away and not knowing what happened to him forever um you mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's because i think on some level i think for for any of us at some point in our lives we have we don't have a night like this but you have a you do have nights where just a string of events happen and you couldn't script. Oh, yeah. it. you couldn't yeah. script it going. It's called college. Yeah, I mean, just like how? <laughs> what are the odds? Like these different people came together in this sequence of events. I mean, so th- it's it's slightly it's slightly relatable, um, but this takes it to the extreme. So you, you know, but we all survive those those nights. So you know, I think this is probably the best ending you could give them. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think I think it's a perfect ending, and and 
you know, that last shot, which goes over the credits, like you see him sitting at his desk and he's a mess. I mean, he's still covered in yeah. plaster. and um, But it's this great shot of like this long camera move, steady cam, like winding through the office building while the credits play. And if you track the shot, it does circle around back to Paul's desk and now he's gone. And now he's gone. Yeah, which I, I like that. I think that's a... Uh... I noted that immediately, and um, yeah, I, th- I think that that gives you enough to kind of go with. Like, this was a complete story yeah. of one guy, one guy's crazy adventures, and really, who knows where he ends up? <laughs> and that, and the who knows? That's, yeah, that's not the point. You know, it's it's. Um, well, is it like? I mean, is this the one crazy night in this average guy's life? Is this the most exciting night in his life that he's ever going to have? Like you don't you don't really know. I mean, I could see every other night being this boring night where nothing ha- ever happens to him, and that's you know this stands out so much because it's the opposite of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, he took a he took a chance on something, and uh, it uh, it led to it led him down a road that you know that I I think yeah he's not an adventurous guy. I mean, and I it seemed like his meeting her and reading and flirting i mean that was all very normal kind of reactions it was call me for a date sometime i'm living i'm there and he chose that that same night um to do it and that's what led 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 him down the hole um to this other Mm -hmm. other other world um yeah but uh, i mean what if he tried to call the next afternoon at four o'clock you know he he certainly right right certainly probably wouldn't have uh an adventure like this (laughs) i don't know yeah yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the themes that, that uh, you were mentioning earlier, this this, you know, his encounters with all these women and there's, you know, there's something to him being, you know, really like emasculated, you know, over and over throughout the movie. I mean, there's little <clears throat> visuals of it, too. I mean, uh, you know, like. Kiki, when he meets up with Kiki Bridges, who's I didn't I don't think we mentioned it, but played by Linda Fiorentino, who's a great actress. Who I don't know what happened, but she's vanished uh, the last uh, ten years or so. But she was in a lot of great movies. Your favorite's probably Men in Black. Sure, of course, absolutely. <laughs> she was great in that. Yeah, you went. <laughs> how many How many uh, Halloweens did you spend as as one of the Men in Black? Oh, uh, four in a row. I I, Four in a row. Okay. I, yeah. I went alternately between the two, uh, Will Smith and uh, Tommy Lee Jones, but I only had to. I okay. only needed the. I go. only needed the one costume. It was great. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> you just grew like a little mustache, and mm-hmm. he didn't have a goatee in Men in Black, right? He had a uh, he had his soul must- patch, maybe. He might have this. I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I definitely. But I definitely did alter the face. At least the mustache. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And that was how you said, like, I've got the mustache. I'm now I'm Will Smith. Yeah. Without Sans mustache, Tommy Lee Jones. Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Four straight years, I won. I won the costume contest every year. You yeah. wouldn't believe it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, <clears throat> a lot of these things that are happening to him are, are women causing it to him. Clearly, Kiki's into some kind of sadomasochistic, uh, you know, thing going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, in, in her in her world there, mm-hmm. but you, I think it, is it on the wall of their apartment where you see like a guy with an erect penis, and then there's a shark. Oh no, it's in the bar I think where there's a, a shark biting it. Yeah, yeah, 
it's just he's in the bathroom washing his face at the bar and then it he just looks over and the camera pans and you know a crude a crude drawing of a shark uh enveloped over a, a guy's penis and he's just it's just sort of those one of those weirder things like who would draw that and why and and here and and you you encounter that in public bathrooms weird weird stuff on the walls all the time yeah yeah and uh you you know the way marcy kind of is hesitant about sexual activity with him mm-hmm. you know maybe by the end she was into it but but she was definitely rejecting him to start yeah uh, and so, and then you know he rejects Catherine O'Hara and uh, Terry Gar. So in turn, like they turn the vigilante mob on him. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> Verna Bloom, who actually this is uh, welcome back, Verna Bloom, because she was in uh, Animal House, I believe. So welcome back to the show, Verna Bloom. Thank you, Verna. Uh, but she, you know, she is the one who physically encases him in that. Uh, that sculpture, so where he's he's trapped again. So, yeah. um, for whatever their intention is, you know this this keeps happening to him, and it's it's the women doing it to him. Well, and it's it's because it's very clear because the bartender says that's that's what's her actual name June. That's June. She's always here, and no one really sees her. So he takes that moment to actually. Like do like a proper thing to like kind of he kind of courts her you know he dances with her he he treats her like a lady or treats her like a you know he treats her like a person <laughs> who isn't forgotten and unseen and that's mm-hmm. why she helps him so like the key it is almost like this thing of like if he just had like a level of respect of seeing these people for who they were instead of like these weird characters because the I mean and the movie presents them all weird but we're seeing everything through his eyes really. So, you know, all these people are weird and strange and he's not seeing them as people and that's why he has so much trouble. At least she then figures out, like, good thing she's also an artist. I mean, they're in Soho, so there's artists everywhere. Um, but, like, she's also working with uh, <laughs> the paper mache that she chooses to protect him from the mob. She doesn't know him, and, yeah. but she asks him right. what he wants or at least he expresses, all I want to do is live. I just want to live. Like, he... He feels like he'll be torn apart, um, and plus, like that when that was like, there was an ominous thing that like the part of the paper mache that stuck to him. It was like it read like a, a news story about a man who was pummeled in the Soho region by an angry mob. Mm-hmm. So it was like it's telling the future. Yeah. Like it's all there. He 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 feels his end is coming. Um, so treating this woman, treating June like um, a person. Uh, is actually the key to his salvation. <laughs> that saves him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, th- I, I, again, it wasn't. I didn't even. That didn't even occur to me on the first viewing. But um, rewatching here, uh, it's all. It's all very obvious and artistically done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, and the movie, you know. So let's talk a little bit of box office and the kind of the legacy of the movie. Um, it's uh, the movie was shot in the fall of '84. Mm-hmm. Uh, comes out September 13th, 1985. The goal, I think, the goal of this movie was not um, uh, was not necessarily money driven. No. It's a low budget movie, so it, it cost four and a half million dollars. That's it. I mean, if they don't make the money back, it's not breaking the bank for the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know has kind of a soft release. It's it's uh, 
uh, opens at number 28 opening weekend. So really just, you know, very small release as a $45,000 opening weekend. Uh, Grand total, it brings in about uh, like 10.6 million, I think. Mm -hmm. So they definitely made money on the movie, which was good. But it was really, it wasn't about that. It was really about Scorsese kind of finding himself again Mm -hmm. after losing his way a little bit after Raging Bull. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, finding what he enjoyed about making films again. And I think you can see that in his next film, uh, Color of Money, mm-hmm. which is a big favorite of mine. Uh, I love the film. I love Paul Newman and and its relation to the Hustler. And uh, uh, you know, I, I think that continued this trend for him, so that he was really ready to do the Last Temptation of Christ, which um, would be you know his epic uh, film that his his heart was in the most. I think mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it didn't have the you know kind of disastrous personal fallout for him like Coppola did with Apocalypse Now but uh, I think he needed to get his confidence back and that's really what was behind this movie and and it looks I mean it looks like it was a hard movie to make uh, being that it's all done at night but it looks fun you know it, it's it's got uh, it was it's very rare to see Scorsese do anything close to a comedy. Um, and I don't know if I'd fully categorize this as a comedy, but it's definitely, I mean, this stuff is so crazy. It is funny. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, I think it's been described as like a black comedy, you know, like the, the, there's this, mm-hmm. there's a certain, uh, certain je ne sais quoi uh, about it, that the, the, the level of absurdism and, and craziness, um, uh, just comes across um, slowly, <laughs> and it really works. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, I I I'm a, I love the movie. <laughs> I, just, I just like this is one of my favorite, really one of the most enjoyable Scorsese movies mm-hmm. to watch. Yeah, you know I find this like a very easy rewatch, mm-hmm. whereas you know some of the other ones like you can't just throw Raging Bull or Taxi Driver on. Right. Yeah. You know those are intense. Goodfellas. I think is pretty easy to rewatch. Um, you know, and and some of the other ones, but but this is very you know as long as it's night, I'm I'm game for this movie. Cool. Cool. You gonna pop it in when you get home tonight? Maybe. Well, probably. Yeah. When I get home from the studio. Yeah. yeah. Just throw it on. I mean, why not? Yeah, uh, <laughs> nothing like a Sunday night screening of uh, middle of the night screening from after hours. Yeah, but yeah, like <laughs> opening opening and probably just in New York and L.A. for a while and probably slowly rolled out. Like, yeah, it it was really about establishing what the, the Scorsese what, what, getting his mojo back, right? I guess right is it, mm-hmm. like this is a nice yeah, little totally. nice little absolutely nice little pit stop for him um, as he yeah. continued on. I mean, so. Uh, so we I, we have Griffin Dunn to thank for for optioning the film and and, and getting him on board. So th- thank you, Griffin. And Griffin Dunn is is really fantastic in the role too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we said that he, you know, I think it was important to not have a star in this. Yeah. You know, if if De Niro had played this role, I don't know if I would have bought it as much. Yeah. Um, you know, he was especially in the eighties, he was such a big star and, and had so much of his persona that, you know, that takes over a scene. Whereas he feels like, you know, feels like you, you, you he's so easy to identify with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and he hadn't been, he'd been in movies. I think mostly he was known for uh, an American werewolf in London where he's uh, spends most of the movie as a decaying body. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he wasn't a super popular household name yet. Yeah. Or I don't know. I guess he probably wouldn't ever be that. But, um, yeah. uh, you know, a good character actor. That's uh, yeah. That's that's what he brings to it. I mean, he 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 belongs. And and like to for him to be the lead in this, it's he's the perfect type for this. Um, not having to be the the traditional type of leading man. It's this is this is just yeah. one average dude's journey <laughs> through craziness. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, I, I he, seeing him in this, he, he's so he, he he's in every scene, so he's he he has to, the whole movie's on his shoulders, and uh, he does a great job. Mm-hmm. With it. Yeah, I'm very very happy with Griffin's performance. And I, yeah, and really everybody, you know, like yeah. from top to bottom, Catherine O'Hara, John Hurd, yeah. uh, Roseanne Arquette, um, even Cheech and Chong briefly, and Ver- Verna Bloom, they're all yeah. All really great. I mean, everyone fits in this movie. Yeah, everyone everyone was was cast appropriately, I think, and and does really well with their characters. Because um, they don't not most of the characters don't get a lot of screen time. But what they do, I mean, I think Patricia, Roseanne Arquette is um, she probably has the second most amount of screen time. But then she dies. Yeah. She, then she dies halfway through. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, which he's not even like sad about, you know. He's he's in shock a little bit, yeah. but he's still mostly concerned with how to get himself out of there because this is just a crazy situation. Yeah. Not that the fact that this poor girl is actually dead. Yeah, yeah. He he doesn't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, he's not so affected by it. He just realizes like things could go really bad for him if if like if Tom connected the dots that he was there. When uh, to, and discovered her body, you know, it, it's he's got to get home. <laughs> he's just he's just got to get out of there. Yeah, he doesn't even wait to get his keys. You know, uh, right. So, um, yeah, you you just sort of I, I sort of feel for him. You know, when he when he finally sp- screams to the heavens, um, it's just like, hey, geez, what 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 more can a man take? Um, yeah, it's it's so funny, it, and it's interesting that like for this guy who is, you know trying to pursue Marcy and then all these other women are pursuing him. And it's like very much like this battle sort of thing for, for him because, you know, his interests are only like, are very particular. She he was really only into Marcy until she seemed to be very mm-hmm. odd. And then it didn't matter if these women were throwing themselves at him. He, he wasn't having it. He, he was only thinking about his own safety. And then in the periphery of all of this going on, because it's Soho, because it's art, very artsy, and 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 very comfortable for for all different types of people. There's a number of queer characters in it, you know, where like he goes back to the bar and there's two met like leather guys making out at the bar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, another gay couple lives presumably in the uh, presumably gay couple lives in the apartment building um, as Tom. And then even when he he sort of tries to find some mercy from uh, some plain looking dude he t- who takes him back to his apartment and where he does his, his big monologue, the guy is like willing to do things w- with him um, that he's like, I've never done this before. And, and Gr- Griffin's just sort of like, or, you know, Paul is just like, uh, I, I think he just, he, 
he can't get satisfaction from anybody anywhere. Like everything is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the queerness like is a little bit of a substitute to like, I think it's a bit of a shorthand to say like, this is not your world, man. Like you, you don't belong here. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, on top of everything else, yep. the metal bar and you know, these quirky characters. So adding that extra layer of, of that to it, I think was an interesting choice. And um, without it being, it wasn't about being that it's, Oh, it's all these queer characters are weird. It's just like, it just hammers mm-hmm. home. This is not his world <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that extra layer was, was interesting to me because you could have done any, any norm, any number of different things to sort of differentiate the population from him. Who's a normal, like mm-hmm. straight dude, you know, just trying to, trying to have yeah. a good, good night out. <laughs> and, uh, um, but yeah, so I thought that was an interesting choice. Very New York. It seemed like very New York. Yeah, you know, and it's just very, um, I don't know, it's very unlike anything else Scorsese has really done. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's such a different piece of work, and I think it's really important in the scope of his career too. Yeah, uh, of the Scorsese films that you've seen, where do you where do you kind of hold it? Um, you know, now that I reviewed, uh, you know, and I and I, oof. I mean, it's up there. It's I got to see more. It's it's very good. I, yeah. I like it, and because it's it, but it's not like any other Scorsese movie I've seen. Movie I've seen. Um, yeah, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I always I like things that are. Um, uh, a ta- I like tangential things. I like a, I like a pivot um, for for things you get used to, and not that like not like Scorsese's making the same movie over and over, but certainly this one's a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, Mm-hmm. I assume so. I really like it. I, 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 every every movie of his I've ever seen, I've enjoyed immensely. So, um, yeah. But there's still plenty I have to see. So, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is probably I'd put it. I put it probably top four Scorsese Ooh, movies. I love that. Um, and not not necessarily this order, but I would, you know, Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. And I would put this right up there. I mean, I know that's maybe not a common uh, choice by others, but that would, uh, I just, I love the film. I, I love the energy it has. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, you know, looking back at it now, I don't feel like it's aged. I don't feel like it's um, anything that really sticks it like solely in the 80s. I think conceptually, you know, I mean, today, like you'd have to work, like, I, you'd have to work in other story points like, losing a cell phone and you know uh, you know the internet not being a part of it or yeah. you know it, it's harder to be that out of touch i mean the whole thing is like if he had just stopped and walked home yeah he would have been home if you map it out in like two hours oh really is that the the, the distance yeah you? that's not too bad <laughs> so if it uh, and wouldn't have done like all this other th- things but because he was so like he had to get money for a cab ride or, you know, money for a train ride. He just, one thing kept leading to another, to another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but had he just walked out of Marcy's and walked home, he would have been home by, what, 3.30, something like that? Yeah. <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of showing up at work at 8 a.m. the next morning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think, yeah. you know, I think the movie holds up extremely well. Yeah. Um, and I would... Uh, how many Jack Burtons do you want to give it? Our Jack Burton scale of uh, one to thirteen. Yeah. What do you What do you rank? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna go let's see out of thirteen. I'm gonna give it a nine. Nine and a half. Honestly. A nine. Yeah, I think it's up okay. there. I think it, it's it's for me for for what it for the uh, for the artistry, for the entertainment value, for the great performances, uh, for the engagement. I mean, I mean, I probably would go even higher. So I'm gonna say nine, just nine five. Uh, it could be a ten out of, out of thirteen. I'll just say safely nine five, and um, yeah, it does seem low. But no, I'll just stick. I'll just stick with it. That's my gut. My gut's telling. <laughs> I'll I'll make up for yeah. it. Yeah, I'm gonna go eleven. Eleven. I'm gonna give it an eleven. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank goodness. Yeah, I think it's just visually so compelling. It, it looks fantastic. Michael Ballhouse obviously proved himself with Scorsese. He ended up doing, I think, a total of six movies together. He did an almost almost in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did Color of Money, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, uh, and then I think, you know, he went off on his own for a bit, but came back and did Gangs of New York and uh, The Departed. Mm-hmm. So some of his most visual films are with Michael Ballhaus, and uh, you know the the camera work alone is a great reason to watch this. But you know everything that that they brought to it, the way it's cut together, all of Scorsese's key, you know, uh, you know the production design, all of it is working here. Um, and it's uh, because it's so different. I I think it holds up really well. Um, so yeah, so I think. Uh, yeah. I'm glad we took a look back at it. I, it had been a, a few years since I've seen it. And, uh, you know, I've seen it probably three times. And each time it feels like a new film to me. There's new things to catch and mm-hmm. little subtle things uh, throughout. So it's I, I would say it's one that's better on a rewatch. Yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine wa- sitting down and watching this in a, a, probably a few months and getting a little bit more out of it than I did I, even on this very mm-hmm. revealing second second showing, for sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but it was cool. It was it was uh, fun to look back at it. It's a, a forgotten film that that people don't really talk about, especially when you talk about Scorsese. This isn't usually a commonly referred to title. Right, right. Yeah. No. So yeah, like at least we can give him props uh, here from our our humble studio that that is uh, ten square miles big. Uh, in the middle of Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, we, Smack in the heart of LA. LA baby. Um, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I might, I might just after this continue with the, with the Scorsese fest of my own and, and watch Michael Jackson's bad. Uh, I think I'm probably going to do that. Oh, there you go. You know, yes. Just keep, yeah. Just probably start with that. That's the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's uh, uh, yeah. That's that's that that. And then uh, I mean I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna here's go. the order. Here, here's here's the correct viewing order for Scorsese. Okay. Michael Michael Jackson's bad. <laughs> then you go Hugo. <laughs> then you go Irishman. Boxcar Bertha. Uh-huh. And then Age of Innocence, and that's it. Oh, okay. The rest you don't need that's to see. That's it. That's the perfect. That's the perfect <laughs> Scorsese fest. <laughs> Yeah, I I didn't. Uh, but no, you should. Uh, we should talk. We should talk off uh, off mic about um, what you haven't seen, and I'll I'll, no. I'll uh, curate a, a list for you. Sure, sure. Um, I'll definitely. Yeah, there's there's plenty I want to see that a lot of these things have been on the list and just never got got around to. So uh, the, I feel like you you um, insisting on me seeing after hours. It's like it's like when you have that to do list and then you go do something that's not on the list. And then you write it in and then cross it off. That's what After Hours is mm-hmm. in my Scorsese list. 
So thank you. So at least it looks I've accomplished <laughs> yeah, more than I intended to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's it. I think I, I think I, I've used up everything I got in the tank. I can't do this anymore. I just this this movie was too good. We want to hear where does this rank for you on uh, the Scorsese films? Is it one of your top films? Is it in the bottom half? What What do you think? Uh, hit us up on social media. We're at Reconsidimation Podcast on. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, so drop us a line there. Of course, you can check out our archives at www.reconsinimation.com. Uh, check out our library. We've got a ton of great films and reviews and looks back at uh, uh, some some great films over the years. Uh, also, a uh, quick uh, thank you to our friends, as usual, uh, E.K. Wimmer for the theme song. And uh, looking forward to his imminent return to this podcast mm-hmm. as a guest co-host mm-hmm. uh, and don't forget to check out his podcast Laser Graves uh, for a look back at some of the uh, best and worst I would say of the horror films of the 80s and uh, <laughs> thank you to uh, Curtis Moore for the poster as usual and uh, don't forget to you know check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts we're on uh, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio. You know, give us wherever you can leave a rating and a review. You know, it would be much appreciated if you could drop it. It doesn't even have to be five stars. We're not saying it has to be that, <laughs> although that would be mo- most appreciated. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're um, going to bother yeah. to support us uh, in that way, just may as well go the whole way. Five? I mean, I'm kind of insisting on it, but no, sure. follow your heart and do, do what you have to. So. Uh, yeah, if, we like the honest reviews too. Yeah, if we're so. at three stars, you know, go ahead, you can say it. If we're at three, just give us a four. Us a and bump. if you think we're four, give us the five. Yeah. And if you're if you're five, <laughs> tell your parents about us, and then get them to listen. Or your friends. Uh, David, you know, my my twenty dollar bill just blew out the window. The uh, mm. the cleaning crew left the window at the studios open here. I got I gotta go. That's my that's my that's how I'm getting home. That's my cab ride. Your twenty dollar so, bill. Uh, I'm gonna go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, twenty. <laughs> it's a short cab ride. Let's say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I will. Uh, we'll see you next time on Reconsinimation. Bye now.